Welcome to Laid Back Lush. I'm Michael. And this is Gabe. Today we wanted to talk to you guys about climates and terroir and also our field trip because Gabe and I decided that we wanted to go and visit a place that serves wine and grows wine and talks about wine. So we went to a place and we did that called Raynard Vineyards, which was absolutely delightful and we can't wait to talk to you about it. Uh, We've alluded to talking about climate and terroir. We've been itching to tell you about it, as you can probably tell by all of our meandering bunny trails going into that. Uh, so this is an episode that we we care about a lot and that we we really want to bring to you. Indeed. So first things that we wanted to kind of talk about were just the basics. What about this little blue planet seems to produce different things at different places? And the first thing that we want to talk about is the temperature differences. Yep. So what do we got today, Gabe? What are we, what are we doing? All right. So climate. At its bare fundamentals for grape growing is kind of separated into how hot your climate is. And if you look at a map of the world, you have a band at, if I remember correctly, it's 30 to 50 degrees latitude. I meant to put it in my notes and I forgot, but I do believe that's the correct number. Those are the bands within which you can grow grapes. They are fluctuating a little bit because of climate change. But in general, within those bands, you can break them down into cool all the way to hot climates. And so I will give a little disclaimer. I forgot to translate these numbers into Fahrenheit. So these are all in Celsius. I do believe Michael did a few calculations. A few calculations. So All in my head. All in your head. All in my sure. head. I yeah. didn't use the calculator <laughs> that was conveniently on my phone. Michael's actually a math prodigy, if you didn't know. If you didn't know. <laughs> so... The only reason I'm not utilized more is because the government wants me as a secret. Exactly. Yeah. We actually had to go through a lot of clearance to get this podcast up and running. <laughs> but, <laughs> but your cool climates are going to be uh, 16.5 degrees Celsius or below. Which is right around that 60 degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. Uh, I should probably also mention these are average temperatures. Mm-hmm. These are not, you know, the collection of your hottest temperatures. So champagne for cool climates is a really good example of your kind of your quintessential cool climate, which is actually very good for sparkling grapes. We'll probably be getting into that in a future episode. Yeah, and how that actually ended up being part of the discovery of champagne. Yes. Yep. So then you move up to a moderate climate. Moderate climate is going to be 16.5 to 18.5 degrees Celsius. That's going to be kind of like your northern Rhone Valley. Syrah can just start to fight ripe my goodness right fully ripen i cannot speak tonight apparently only around syrah we've we've actually uh done this recording now three times and <laughs> and of the two of them we've had trouble saying syrah yeah well apparently i can't say fully ripen now so <laughs> yeah it's, it's devolving go. it's okay <laughs> it's okay so that's kind of your moderate climate in a warm climate you're going to be looking at 18.5 to 21 degrees celsius and that actually kind of goes right into your southern rhone valley where you start getting into being able to get grenache and muvedra to fully ripen which are some of our bolder flavors yep and then you get into hot which is 21 degrees celsius or above and you can kind of just think of most places in australia as a hot climate and actually if we want to keep going with syrah you know, we were talking last week about how oh, bold yeah. and, and robust those wines are, and 
that's your hot climate. Yeah, we were talking earlier uh, about the Victoria Park from Barossa Valley, which is one that I particularly love just because of how big and boisterous it is. Yeah. You know, when you, you know, we talked about in the earlier episodes, when you have a hotter climate, you can get a lot more of those ripened flavors for your white wines. That's going to give you your stone fruits for your red wines. That's going to give you your your darker, uh, more ripe, even jammy notes yeah uh, whereas your cooler climates are going to give you those more green notes uh, mm-hmm. just to kind of recap yeah so a lot of a lot of cool things where you can actually just point to a region on a map and not necessarily guess at the flavors that you're going to get but kind of guess at the category of flavors that you're going to get yep it's very helpful um especially if you the more you get familiar with grape regions the more you'll kind of know what to expect from them but we don't just have latitude and longitude Mm-hmm. affecting climate we also have something called continentality yep so how would you define continentality so continentality is going to be kind of the difference between your summer temperatures versus your winter temperatures and what's what's affecting that so a lot can affect that your proximity to large bodies of water will affect that your proximity to mountains will also affect that so and it's the difference between the sudden drop off of summer to winter temperatures uh for for a continental classification continental climate yeah you're gonna have that that's kind of the defining characteristic thing yeah so you have um continental climates do kind of tend to be on the cooler end of the spectrum so typically Mm -hmm. cool to moderate so so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a hot hot summer exactly but it is a sharp drop off to a more intense winter i see um but in areas like so i was just talking about mountains uh alsace has the vosges mountains that act as a rain shield which also will kind of block your cool winds and and weather from coming in as as rapidly and heavily during the fall so in areas like uh chablis which is just a straight cool continental climate you're not getting late harvest wines in there Mm. because your fruit ripens when it ripens and you need to get it off the vines quick because you're gonna run into very cold weather oh and so there's frost damage as a threat Mm -hmm. yeah continental climates can also run into the problem of frost in the spring for our early uh early budding vines so you have the the buds on the vine you've already done your pruning Mm -hmm. and so if you have that super sharp difference Mm -hmm. and you still have that little bit of of chill in the air and it gets down to frost you can actually end up having a vineyard where it destroys yeah the the potential grape making buds that are coming out yep so going back to alsace you when you have those mountains there that are kind of acting as a shield from that cold weather coming in as rapidly in the fall you can extend your growing period pick your grapes later, get late harvest styles of wine, which are going to be, you know, more ripe flavors, more uh, typically there are sweet styles as well. Yeah, I've had a lot of lovely, like the Albrecht Gewürz demeanor uh, Mm -hmm. in particular. Yeah. So that's kind of what you can think about a continental climate as is unless you have some moderating influence like mountains or something like a body of water, you're going to have a pretty sharp uh, drop off and also something to note about continental climates is they tend to have dry summers yeah hugely important especially if you're having more delicate grapes yeah uh, so like grapes like pinot noir that is actually highly susceptible to rot mm-hmm. uh, so if you're in an area with the humidity index of you know 80 like yeah. let's say you're in florida you can't grow that 
it's going to rot off the vine. Yeah, it's just way too much water for that grape. But so we just we're talking about large bodies of water that kind of brings us into a maritime climate. So maritime climate, you're going to have a large body of water as kind of the defining characteristic of that kind of climate. So oceans and seas are typically your big influences. If you had a big enough lake, I guess maybe you could classify as a maritime climate. Oh, absolutely. uh, It's less common. Lakes tend to be more of kind of like a micro regional influence than like a whole regional. If you want to think about a big region, think about Bordeaux, that's like your big maritime the maritime climate yeah right on the edge of the atlantic ocean the gironde river comes in through the middle of bordeaux Mm -hmm. that's where you get your right bank and left bank distinctions left bank has a lot more maritime influence because you know it's sitting it's the left bank where they actually grow the grapes is only a few kilometers from the coast if i remember correctly so you have a lot of you know humidity another big defining characteristic of maritime climates is that they have a lot of rainfall well maybe not a lot of rainfall but it's rainfall that's spread evenly throughout the year Mm. so whereas you have the continental ones that have you know a wet spring Mm -hmm. and a wet fall both of which are pretty short and then you have that super dry summer your maritime climates they're going to have that consistent rain yeah so they're wetter in general they're also more humid in general, mm-hmm. and obviously, if you're close to a body of water, you're just going to have more humidity in the air. Which also means more heat retention. That means more heat retention, yeah. That large body of water will moderate your summer and winter temperatures, so it'll reduce the continentality of the climate overall. Oh, so you actually have this large body of water acting as basically a summer and winter insulation. Yeah. So it'll cool you off during the summer because of those breezes coming off. Yep. But then in the winter... It's retained all that heat and actually is mm-hmm. keeping the place warm. Yep. Oh, it, that's fascinating. It's Yeah, that's a very big moderating influence. And when we were just talking about lakes, that's kind of on a smaller scale. What will happen around a lake, a large lake as well, is you'll be able to extend your growing season in certain areas or you won't have as an extreme drop off if you're in a more continental area. Are you are you familiar at all with like the Great Lakes and how that might be affecting things or? Uh, so I'm not as familiar with the Great Lakes. I do know that they do make a difference in the growing of the grapes around them, and they do act as a moderating influence. But because that region kind of tends to not get very warm in the first place, I don't think it's as, or well, I'll say you can't grow the same grapes that you could in Bordeaux um, no. in the Finger Lakes. No. So we have our maritime areas. Mm-hmm. We have uh, close proximities to to bodies of water being sort of what influences that and how those things as large bodies of water can impact things like temperature, mm-hmm. humidity, and consistent rainfall, access yep. to water. So we also have our Mediterranean climates, yep. which is the area that I was actually working in for a little bit. I worked very briefly in the Middle East and uh, at a vineyard. I will not say which one. Uh, But it was a very interesting experience. Of course, the way that it works there is that you have that super brief rain period that's only once in spring and once in fall. And so everything there actually has to be irrigated. Mm -hmm. What would you what would you say is a defining feature of the Mediterranean climates? So like a maritime climate, a Mediterranean climate tends to have a low continentality. Uh, However, maritime regions tend to be a cool to moderate in general temperature range mediterraneans tend to be warm to hot 
mm-hmm. climates for one thing. So that will kind of play normally directly into the irrigation that you were talking about. They have warm summers and they have dry summers. Mm-hmm. Again, that'll go into the need for irrigation. Think of, you know, your Middle East or your California is a, a Mediterranean climate in a lot of places. Some parts of Australia are Mediterranean. Just think of warmer, drier, the grapes that are going to come out. I mean, California is known for Cabernet Sauvignon, Australia, Shiraz, um, in the Middle East. I'm not super familiar with grapes in the Middle East. I need to read up more on it, but I do know that they yeah. tend to be those thicker skinned red grapes. Yeah, uh, I've had a lot of Chardonnay there. Um, but I do have to admit it was actually a Petit Verdot that uh, captured my attention while I was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's that like the perfect seemed, climate for a Petit Verdot. Yeah. It, and it was delicious because I, I had the Merlot there. To, to be perfectly honest, um, and this could have just been the winemaker, mm-hmm. um, but I did not like the Merlot. It was it was such an acquired taste. However, I have to say that was my first wine experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I was actually 19 when I had my first full glass of wine. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. Uh, on was, our, on it our was, podcast. It was legal. For legal reasons. It was legal in, in the country. For and legal I, reasons, Michael was not in the U.S. when this happened. Yeah, for legal reasons, I was not in the U.S. when this happened. I also, it's it's so sad. I was I was so innocent. I actually called my parents and asked them permission. Because <laughs> well, I didn't want to, you know, break faith with them. <laughs> I, was, I was just like, so I'm here. I would like to do this. Uh, let me just go ahead and, and run it by you guys and of course, my my parents, especially my mother, who uh, encouraged me to rebel, was like, "Yeah, you're in Israel working on a vineyard. We are expecting you to do this the whole time." That is so cute. Yeah, <laughs> looking back, I'm just like, I should have just gone after it and lived my life. But hey, at least they were supportive. Yeah, no, I was. I'm I'm glad that they were uh, they're as supportive as they were. I also ended up bringing a bunch of wine back home. So, <laughs> so they benefited as well. I'm assuming uh, they they did. Uh, I was able to actually gift it to a couple of those bottles of wine to some some people in Richmond, and that was very special for me. Of course, I uh, also was put into the bad line because of chocolate. So <laughs> yeah, but that's that's a story for another time. So what would you define cuz we're uh you know we just got back from Renard Vineyards. Yep. We were talking a little bit about um our experience there earlier. Mm-hmm. We were trying to figure out how to define the Virginia climate because we are odd. We're yeah, we're weird. So I just went with what Wikipedia said and, and so it kind I, of fit. I will not take credit for this description, but they describe us as a humid subtropical with maritime and continental in the highland areas. <laughs> and it's it's kind of like that really is a mishmash of different things, but it makes complete sense. Yeah. So if you're not from Virginia or if you're not necessarily fully familiar with the geography of Virginia, we where we're at, we are an hour from the mountains and we're also an hour from the beach. So yeah. that's your maritime on the beach side mm-hmm. and then on the mountain side that's your continental side yeah and we are definitely humid our summers are you know they're not the hottest in the world but we do i have mean warm i still summers. complain about them yeah yeah <laughs> as does everybody in we also state. complain about our winters but that's becoming less of a thing yeah well you know again climate change is is, is a thing we can we can grow grapes in southern england now which was impossible a couple decades ago I do. Mm. Well, they're making sparkling wines that rival champagne now. So, you know, the drawbacks if, and if they were growing anything else 
on principle i might forego but they're growing my favorite stuff yeah and and they're i've had one so far they're very hard to find because they're a it's a new wine industry they're not producing a whole lot yet and also they're very sought after right now so it's hard to get them but i have had one and it was very good you are saying all the right things right now and i'm getting more (laughs) and more curious leading you with the exclusivity yeah well the exclusivity but i'm also just kind of thinking oh wow that's like a whole untapped region for the creativity of wine yeah and now it is well and again it's only possible because that region's warming up overall which so, means that we might be losing Scotland because it might just sink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, again, advantages and disadvantages, right? <laughs> uh, so, happier topic. Uh, we did go to Reynard Vineyards, as we said. And, Michael, you took a lot of notes. So. I, I did take a lot of notes. We got there. It was it was a beautiful little little spot. We um, It took us about, what, an hour and 40 minutes Oh, not even that. Not it, even it was that. it was just around an hour. Just around an hour. Yeah. I wasn't driving, so I wasn't paying attention, but yeah. but what I was paying attention to is what we drove up to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's right around the corner from Barbersville. Mm-hmm. Uh if you've ever been there, but it's this little this family little owned family owned very yeah. intimate setting. It's on a uh, southern slope. Yep. And so you see where the family lives, you see where the grapes are being grown. There's a little seating area out there, and then you have the tasting room and the area where the wine is being made. Uh, so we ended up going on in there, and that was – it was charming. Unfortunately, it was raining at the time, so we weren't yeah. able to be seated outside. They do have ample outdoor seating. Mm-hmm. We were still COVID safe. We were very COVID safe about all of this. We they were are. wearing masks. They were wearing masks. They're very respectful of the social distancing. Yeah, and they also uh, seemed to be especially accommodating to our comfort level. They were they were they were going above and beyond. Very I, hospitable. I, I cannot uh, overstate their friendliness. Yeah. So we got there. We ended up taking two flights. We wanted to be able to. Oh, we also met a corgi. Yes, we did meet a corgi. There's a corgi there whose name very I believe adorable. is Tui. He, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. I didn't remember because I was too busy petting the dog while she was trying to tell me the name. <laughs> but he is the flagship dog there, and he fits in with the theme. Reynard, uh, for those who do not speak French, of which I am one, uh, it means fox. That area was apparently named after uh, a, a valley of the fox. So everything there is fox themed, which I adored because I love foxes. It was very cute. It was very cute. So we get there. We get these two flights. Each flight contained four wines. And we just went through the list. We got their reds. We got their whites. And we started going on them. So the first one that we tried was the Reynard Blanc. That was a very subtle, very aromatic wine. Mm -hmm. We tried their Chardonnay, their Mansang. And your favorite, I believe, ended up being their Cab Franc Rosé. Yeah. Well, so fun little tidbit about me. I don't know if I mentioned this in our first episode or not, but I am not really a rosé drinker. I could probably count on one hand how many bottles of rosé I've bought in my life. That's not to say I dislike rosé to any degree. It's just I'm a full-bodied red drinker normally, mm-hmm. so that's what I tend to go for. But you love Cab Franc. Uh well, I I like particular styles of Cab Franc. I I'll see, say that. I see. Uh, Cab Franc, if it's not treated correctly in the vineyard, gets a lot of pyrazines in the skins. 
pyrazines are what give you that bell pepper or peppery note yeah. and when it's out of control in a cab franc which i've had a lot of cab francs where it is and some people like to have that in the cab franc i that really gets me don't, right behind the eyes i, I really I don't it. like it it's really high toned and it's very hard for me to ignore and it just comes across as very bitter no, and, it feels like it's I, pushing through the top of your palate yeah abrasively uh, i do not like it but when cab franc is more you know for my taste it's very fruity very red fruit in particular it still has some of that green character but it's not nearly as overpowering it's just kind of a nice backbone to the wine but so you're saying you're not a, a huge rosé drinker but you were really loving yeah it Cap was Franc rosé. it was really nice it was more in kind of that tavel style rosé where it's more it's not you know like a really easy sipping rosé to me part of the reason why i'm not a big rosé drinker is a lot of the rosé that you tend to find at least around here for me tastes a little bit watered down for lack of a better mm -hmm. term not necessarily in that it's low quality but just it's not meant to be a, a robust wine no, it's meant to be a very light drinking wine that you yeah. can have super chilled mm -hmm. chilled actually lower than than you're supposed to yeah um but it's designed for that so i guess you are supposed to now but this was not that. This was uh, much more fruit forward, much more. Um, it had so much character. Yeah, it had a lot of really nice body on it. Um, so I I got a bottle of it and it was on sale when I was there. And I, yeah, who knows, it might still be. It was part of their winter sale, I believe. So, yeah, I, I actually um, when I go for a rosé, I go for like the, the Salmon Sancerre uh rosé mm -hmm. i like the ones that have a lot of minerality to it yeah so although i really enjoyed it um and i could definitely get that kind of very fruit forward note to it and that really balancing cassis note yeah cassis um that was actually lovely but it, it was very quickly lost on me because i kept on trying to find that like high <laughs> yeah. key minerality yeah well and i think this is a really good example of you know different styles of wine or different mm -hmm. people like you know like you like your style of rosé and I like mine and they're not the same and that's perfectly oh, fine. Yeah, no. And the the thing is, is I could tell that it was high quality. It was just not what I was used to. Not, yeah. not typically what I look for. But that being said, I actually really loved their mensang. Mm -hmm. It was uh, it was like caramelized tropical fruit. Yeah. And it was it was it was lovely. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as sweet, but there there was there was some it was sweet fruit, sweet fruit. And we were kind of talking a few episodes ago about sugar in a wine versus the perception of sweetness from the fruit in a wine mm. that was a wine where i totally understand why people make that confusion but that one also had a lot of alcohol in it in order to balance it out what it was, was it 16 yeah <laughs> yeah it was yeah and and you could feel it like it it was you could feel it in your throat but it was uh it, it wasn't unbalanced though i will say no. that it was very well balanced they had a perfect amount of acidity mm -hmm. along with that i i i fell in love with that one but what I really fell in love with, with was with their reds. Yeah. So a little bit about the owner. We ended up actually having a chance to meet him and speak with him. He is an architect. So he built the place. Then he studied uh, enology and he was able to actually be the vine tender. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he also was the winemaker. And he's a musician. And he's a musician. And they, they, I think it was every Sunday that they said that they do music it was saturday or sunday it was during the weekend I, that's Dur what i remember during the weekend i i probably have it actually written down in my notes but my notes are actually too ample <laughs> so I'm, I'm having trouble finding it but 
it was a delight to be able to speak with him for a little bit. The thing that they seem to really love is in the same vein they they named their vineyard reshare uh they named their vineyard Raynard, and so they love these more French style of wines, so mm-hmm. what came through was quality, yeah, so we ended up having the recherche, which means very rare, unique, highly sought after, and they had three different of these types, all of which were done in a Bordeaux style. Mm-hmm. So they had uh, a 2015, they had a 2017, uh, and they had a 2016. So we tried the 2017 first. We both were impressed. Mm-hmm. Very bright cherry, sweet plum, blackberry, subtle pepper. And then we got to the next one and it blew that one out of the water. Yeah. The 2016, it was 55% caps off. It had Petit Verdot in it. However they did it, it ended up being the super smooth, like vanilla, pea pod, mm-hmm. uh, jammy flavor. It was incredible with just the right amount of earthiness. Yeah. Um, the one I ended up going home with and immediately drinking was the Recherche 2015. You already drank it? Oh, that thing's gone. <laughs> that thing's gone. I, it's the, the 2015 I have laying down. Okay. 20, 2017 is the one that I have laying down. The 2015, that's the one that... That we just consumed. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we consumed it. Yes. You were there. I was there. You should know. I, well, you know. Well, you know. <laughs> that one was so good. We were both blown out. It was a uh, 60% Merlot. You got smoke. You got mint. You got eucalyptus. You had these cracked spices. It was a little mentholated. But you just got so many of these meshing blackberry and flint flavors all kind of mixing together with this really smooth well-rounded tannin structure Mm -hmm. we were both highly impressed yeah so that's why that ended up going home although i know that you took home also the rosé i did yeah Yeah. it was a delight talking with them too they're they're locals uh so they kind of know the area they kind of know uh some of the other spots so we actually got a couple of recommendations off of them really lovely people and i'm glad that we had the chance to have this experience yeah it was a really fun trip i'm very glad we went yeah and the seating areas i'm looking forward to going back there in the summer yeah maybe we should go back in spring because i know if by the way if anybody knows the canadian uh sortilege um it's like a a distilled spirit that's either infused or made with maple please dm us (laughs) tell us what that is and where to find it especially if you live in richmond we need to know it's related we promise it's relevant also related is the governor's cup in Virginia. Oh, right. I almost forgot. Yeah, that just happened this past weekend. So there was actually a couple of wines that they couldn't serve to us because it would have brought them down below the 50 cases that they needed in order yeah. to qualify. <laughs> and lo and behold, I ended up getting a, a message earlier this week from Gabe because he was actually paying attention. Yeah, so uh, they have won a silver medal for both the Cabernet Franc 2017, not the Rosé, uh, just a fully red wine, Cabernet mm-hmm. Franc, and uh, the Recherche 2016. So congratulations to them. Congratulations to them. Yeah. And now we know that those those cases are all fair game, so we better get there sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to check and see if they do online orders. Oh, oh, please. One would hope. You were talking about they have south-facing slopes, so that kind of goes into what we want to talk about next, yeah. which is terroir. 
this is this is an interesting topic. Yeah, we're yeah. both excited about this topic. Yeah, it's uh, so I I kind of want to put a little disclaimer just on the front end. Terroir, even among professionals who have been in the game for a long time, can be a bit debated as to the scope of what it means. And we have lots of opinions on why that might be that we probably won't share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not trying to make waves in the industry or no. anything. These are all very creative, productive individuals. Oh, absolutely. And uh, there are arguments to be made, I think, from most of the perspectives that are represented under the term. Uh, yeah, so... Which we've been arguing back and forth, actually, <laughs> yeah. just in order to kind of establish an understanding between us because it is kind of an odd concept when you're talking mm-hmm. about what really makes a wine that wine. Yeah. So terroir can kind of be defined in part as just a, a sense of place. And yeah. so that meaning the factors within a given area or region that makes a wine taste the way it does. And this can include the climate. This can include the topography. Um, this can include the soil this this typically is going to be defined by the actual lay of the land mm-hmm. and how the grapes interact with that land now when we define it between the two of us we kind of agreed that this was something that was defined not by the practice of the winemaking but the winemaking is actually a product reacting to what the terroir gives you yes that is the debated thing though so some people actually uh, in the industry, they're saying that how you make the wine, how you handle the wine is part of the terroir, which you could say that maybe we are the, you know, we are the environmental factor that's yeah. affecting it. But we would like to see it as more of we are handling what nature is giving. Yeah. So there are practices. I mean, also you have different things like trellising and the mm-hmm. micro environments that that creates. Yeah. But you are, again, trying to react to the lay of the land when you're even doing those practices. Yeah. So when people are talking about, you know, picking up on the terroir of a wine, what they're basically saying is, is they feel that the wine that they're drinking is representing the region it came from well. So Burgundy, Pinot Noir, if we want to use an example, if someone is talking about, you know, earthy, mushroomy character in that wine Mm -hmm. and referring to that as part of the terroir like that is kind of a defining feature of a lot of burgundian yeah or even when i was talking about the salmon sancerre Mm -hmm. where you have a lot of that i i just i'm talking about seashells because that area is uh that used to be a seabed and so the seashell is actually putting a lot of calcium into it yeah that would be an element of of terroir Mm -hmm. also because of the highly reflective value of those exposed seashells so i actually kind of want to focus in on that because you know we've been talking in a little bit of a more nebulous terms about terroir so what actually is terroir what makes up terroir i kind of want to break that down into the factors so you were just talking about uh, seashells and and how that affects the soil so soil is probably one of the primary if not the primary influence on how a wine will end up tasting in the long run yeah so what's our composition here yeah and that can vary so much i mean you have everything from volcanic soils from you know Mm -hmm. broken down metamorphic rock to what we have here in virginia which is primarily clay soil yeah we do have some things when you get out towards like charlottesville that are are the result of volcanic activity but that's very old volcanic activity and it had to come through layers and layers and layers of clay yeah and so one thing that clay will do 
just to kind of, you know, give you a, give you a primer, I guess, on the different kinds of soil, you know, clay tends to be more retentive of water. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it'll hold more water, which will obviously give more water to the vines. It'll also keep the soil cooler, Mm -hmm. which is not always what you want. So So, like Bordeaux, you were talking about earlier, we have uh, a very maritime area, mm -hmm. but just the soil composition from one bank to the other ends up actually affecting which grapes that you can even grow there because of water retention. So yeah, on the, on the right bank, they actually kind of have not the same, but they have a lot of clay in their soil like we do. So you tend to find a lot more Merlot and Cap Franc because Merlot and Cap Franc can tolerate that kind of soil. On the left bank, you tend to have very gravelly soils and particularly um, darker colored gravelly soils. Mm. Now, that's another huge thing. Yes. As we know, darker color, you know, asphalt, for example. If you put your hand on asphalt in summer, you're probably going to get burned because asphalt retains heat. That dark color will retain heat. Which, as our public service announcement, if you're walking your dog on asphalt, put your hand down first. Yes. See if it's too hot. And if it is, it's too hot for your dog, too. That's our public service announcement featured by Laidback Lush. I'm Michael Moore, and this is Gabe. Thanks for coming to our TED Talk. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. (laughs) Uh, But so we have retention of heat by color or Mm -hmm. in the case of that opposite the reflection of heat Mm -hmm. that's why they're able to grow cabernet sauvignon on that soil is it retains heat very well it lets cabernet sauvignon get as hot as it wants to get to fully ripen and when you have those more gravelly soils they tend to be a lot more free draining than clay soil for Mm -hmm. example which allows those juices to be nice and concentrated inside mm -hmm. of the grape as opposed to being bloated. Yes. And Cabernet Sauvignon in particular, uh, as my instructor for WSET put it, does not like to have its feet wet. I love that. I love that so much. It's just a characteristic of that grapevine. It's this big, boisterous, bold wine, Mm -hmm. and it's just dainty around water. Exactly. So it's that is a very big indicator of what you can and can't grow and how what you do grow will manifest is your soil content and so we have this difference between how the soil content is reacting with sunlight as opposed to how it's reacting with water yep and so that actually ends up contributing greatly to not only what can be grown there but also how it grows Mm -hmm. so we also have things like slopes if you have a steeper slope than you do uh in a valley so you you can have something that's growing on a a highly steep slope that's going to have more surface drain off Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to be able to give you those more concentrated grapes and that will also uh you just mentioned sunlight slopes give you really good access to sunlight Mm -hmm. and sunlight is a very i mean it's a plant obviously sunlight is what it needs for food it needs it to photosynthesize when you have an area like new zealand is actually a really good example of how important sunlight is is because new zealand tends to have a lot of sunlight even though new zealand overall tends to be cooler to moderate in its climates across both the north and south islands but that sunlight if you're in the right area that beats down on the grapes all day allows them to get really ripe. yeah especially since the grapes themselves more often than not are a darker color yeah so Sunlight is very important on a slope, even within where you're at on that slope. And the angle of sunlight will affect how a wine tastes. In like in Mosul, you have, we talked last week about the really steep slopes. Mm -hmm. So on those slopes, 
Sometimes you'll even have producers that will separate their mid-slope vines from like the top and the bottom and make wines solely within those bands because they know the quality is going to be a little bit different. And it's cost prohibitive anyway, so they have, to, yeah. they have to really kind of triage where they're growing. Mm-hmm. But those mid-slope vines have a really nice kind of trifecta, I guess, of they get the perfect kind of like amount and angle of sunlight to fully ripen. There's good airflow mm-hmm. on a slope, uh, you know, cool air falls. And so, you know, they're they're not at the risk of frost like the bottom of a slope would be mm-hmm. where that cool air is going to collect uh, or at least not as high risk of frost. I'll say that. So you have that and then you have more, you know, free draining soils as well. So they're not getting waterlogged, which you really don't want particularly around harvest that's actually a really big problem here in virginia we have a lot of rain typically in our summers um and i i believe it was the 2018 vintage here was really bad because everybody's grapes got waterlogged and a lot of people couldn't even produce particularly red wines because they were just too watered down and diluted by the time the harvest came around so it was a day for rosé it was a day for rosé it was a day for rosé along with that aspect of slopes what direction the aspect it's called of the slope is very important as well so the aspect is just what cardinal direction is this vineyard facing so that was like the first thing that i noticed when we pulled up to Raynard vineyards is i immediately pulled out my compass and was just like okay what what direction is the slope facing and it was a southern facing slope it had a beautiful valley beneath it that led up to another northern facing slope they purchased it i believe with that in mind Mm mm-hmm and that was a that was a very smart choice that showed a lot of forethought. Yeah. When you think about aspect in general, if you're in the northern hemisphere, you probably want southern facing, particularly maybe southeast to maximize your sunlight during the day. And in the southern hemisphere, just kind of flip that uh, northern facing mm-hmm. to maximize the amount of sun. However, there are certain areas where you might want the opposite. If you're in a really, really hot area, you might want vineyards that actually face away or, or, or even, not directly face the sun yeah. to slow down the ripening process to preserve particularly your acid so you're not getting a flabby wine after it leaves the winery. It's not always you'd want to face directly to the sun, but that is typically what people look for in the aspect of their vineyards. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of that is actually Duro because you have the Duro River and you have two slopes facing away from it on either side and so Mm -hmm. you're able to actually have the aspect of each one of those slopes very directly uh affecting which grapes are grown on just the sides of a river yeah and that to me is fantastic if you've never had any uh portuguese wines that's that's another thing that if you ever see duro on a bottle just grab it yeah um a lot of really lovely chocolatey notes in there and i do want to actually note rivers really quick because rivers tend to be very important in a lot of regions for one thing, if you're in a very cool region, planting along a river can be a good way to try and avoid frost mm-hmm. in your vineyards because rivers keep airflow going. So you're not getting, hopefully, cool air just collecting at the bottom of the yeah. slope and freezing your grapes or your buds yeah. or, or, or whatever you, you're trying to avoid in that Which can area. also happen in mountainous plateaus. Yep. Uh, you also... As we know, sunlight reflects off of water, so that can help with ripening as well because you're getting sunlight also being bounced back up into the grapes from the river itself, maximizing their exposure to sunlight. So in a very cool area, 
going back to Mosul, that's a big factor there as well. As I mentioned, that is planted along a river. You're getting that sunlight reflected back, helping the photosynthesis happen, helping the grapes ripen fully. Very important. Rivers are pretty important as well. Um, and kind of going off of rivers, uh, you were talking about irrigation. Mm-hmm. Access to water yeah. is kind of, you know, sunlight and water go hand in hand with yeah. all plants. Uh, you have to know that you can water your vines. And that's when we kind of get into that de- debate of the growing the growing practices actually being part of the terroir because I know when I was when I was working in the Middle East, they had to irrigate. Yeah. There was no way to do anything without irrigation mm-hmm. because it is so dry there during the summers. It is so, so dry there. Yeah. Yeah. So that is another another little element there. But access to water is huge and the timing of the water because grapes like abuse. They like mm-hmm. to have to dig for their water. Yeah. You don't actually want your grapes to be too spoiled when you're growing them. Mm-hmm. That includes both uh, nutrient content in your soil. If your soil's too fertile, you'll actually have too much vine vigor, it's called, and your canopy will just kind of explode. And when you're when you're when you're growing your grapes and and your vines are too fed, they're growing too much leaf and canopy, and it's taking the energy that you want to go into the grapes and putting it into that canopy. Mm. So you actually don't want too much water or too much nutrient content in your soil because it's not uh, conducive to concentrating the flavors of the grapes themselves. Cause the plant isn't really focused on reproduction. It's just focused on doing its thing and yeah. putting leaves out everywhere. It, even in areas that are very dry, they still might not have, want it to be as wet as say it is here in virginia for example because they know that that vine stress is going to concentrate the flavors in those grapes yeah and even in when i was like i said when i was in the middle east it's a a drip method Mm -hmm. it's that they are giving the smallest amount of water just enough in order to give it some life but not quite enough Mm -hmm. to actually do it's not like uh those large sprayers that you see with their arching bows across (laughs) you know across (laughs) fields of uh of rows and rows of cabbage yeah it's it's these little tiny drippers that are just at the base of each one of these things that are like maybe once every four hours are like drip drip yeah and then it's done yep so even even when you're providing you still have to be very restrictive yeah so moving on from water unless you had anything to add for water uh no I, th- I after the reflectivity thing i think we're good but it is it, it is actually important to note like places like a uh, like um, champagne where you do have that high that high calcium and chalk content yeah that you're actually having that same effect of heat being reflected off of the ground mm-hmm. up to the grapes direct yeah. sunlight contact with the grape skins themselves is actually something that you want mm-hmm. and a lot of people they thin out the leaves just so that they can have that yeah uh, that's part of the the concept of microclimate mm-hmm. so that's just another thing when you have like granite or anything like that like we were saying where you actually have to be thinking about how is the terrain reacting with sunlight so yeah that's that's fantastic so moving on from from access to water we're also talking about altitude yep so what do we got about altitude altitude basically is a mitigating factor normally for hot climates argentina is a very good example of this argentina has a lot of 
very high altitude grapes because that's the only place that the grapes can even grow mm. at just Argentina is also mostly a you know desert in in its climate so it's just too hot for grapes but when you go up in climate or sorry up in altitude you tend to get into cooler if you've ever scaled a mountain you know it gets cold it gets cold and also you have the weather that's happening around the mountains themselves that can bring mm-hmm. in things like fog yeah like mist which can also be especially cooling especially in the mornings yeah and so if in a very hot area you want that in order to just be able to grow grapes in the first place yeah it also will help what's called your diurnal range which is important in all climates um define diurnal range yes uh so diurnal range is the difference between your day temperature and your night or your average day temperature and your average night temperature which is hugely important to the history of wine yeah so when it comes to grape growing in particular so let's say you have a syrah grape growing in a place with a very low diurnal range and then you have another vineyard in place with a higher diurnal range so that syrah that's grown in the place with a very low diurnal range will ripen a lot faster and it will not retain as much acid because when you're growing grapes as your sugar levels rise which rise with the ripeness of the grapes your acid levels tend to drop off mm-hmm. and we're assuming that we're in a hotter climate no. Oh, yeah. For Syrah, we, we have to be. Yeah. So so if we have that higher diurnal range, though. It's getting cooler at night. It's mm-hmm. slowing down that ripening process. It's preventing the grape from getting too hot too fast. And it is helping preserve the acid of the grape, which will help make the wine more refreshing when you drink it. So we talked about wine balancing in earlier episodes where mm-hmm. the acid content actually helps because it makes your mouth water. Correct. So, and that allows your palate to kind of cut through some of those flavors. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this stop and go with a higher diurnal range where it's ripe, 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 and stop. Yeah. And ripe, 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 and stop. And it balances out the acidity mm-hmm. just during the growing process. Yep. And so altitude helps with that a lot. Typically, you'll have higher diurnal ranges at altitude. So again, that's helping in really hot climates. You're getting a a cooler kind of overall climate the higher up you go and also you are helping your grapes with the day and night temperatures not ripen as quickly and i'm sure our listeners you guys have probably seen how when you are going through the wine shop or you're going through these places you see the names of mountains maybe you didn't know that they were mountains but Mm -hmm. you see the names of mountains and those tend to be the more expensive wines they are really just climbing up there in price Mm -hmm. they are kind of worth it in a lot of cases when they're grown on these mountains but that's also uh the price will be impacted on the fact that it's a lot more expensive to produce or just to grow grapes at all at that because you're having to get whatever equipment you have up there you're having to take care of the vineyards at these sites they're typically very steep so that will also affect your price, not yeah. just the quality. Although the quality is ultimately, you know, hopefully what you're paying for. Yeah. It's also the production methods that had to go into growing it at that altitude. I mean, in Argentina, you get upwards of 3,000 feet above sea level yeah. in certain places. And it's just, you're on these slopes and it's hand harvesting and it's, you know, Labor very careful. And yeah, exactly. So that that is another factor to consider there. Oh, wow. Wow, that's fantastic, though. Just thinking about how 
literally the climate provided by a mountain can affect the flavor of wine so much. That's what mm-hmm. we talk about when we talk about terroir. Yeah. That's the sort of thing where we're seeing the character of a mountain. Yeah. So everything that we just kind of talked about from sunlight all the way to diurnal range, that that's kind of what people are saying when they say terroir. It's it's in whatever specific region we're talking about, all these influences that came together to make this wine taste a certain way that it does. And when you taste enough wine, particularly from a given area, you can start to tell certain little uh, tells, I guess, for that wine mm-hmm. of, oh, like this, uh, as I mentioned earlier with Burgundy and Pinot Noir, you know, typically those earthier mushroomy characters tend to come out a little bit more in Burgundy than, say, uh, Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. Willamette Valley tends to be more fruit forward and, and, and richer. Burgundy tends to be a little bit more restrained and earthy. You know, that comes down to that climate balance mm-hmm. in between the same grape, you know, uh, same overall, you know, red fruits, um, even Willamette Valley wines will tend to show some mushroomy character and some earthy character with some age. But yeah, it's just when you if you were to taste them side by side, you would be able to to see the difference between the two. And that is kind of the beauty of terroir and part of why I really love talking about this particular subject, because if we could go into any region on earth that grows wine and just talk for days about how all how these influences are influencing both what you're doing in the vineyard and in the winery. Well, and it's fantastic to to think about because we we briefly talked about it before where we were saying that the winemaking practices, they could be rec- replicated to a T, mm-hmm. but they might not actually apply. Yeah. So you have these different characters that are produced simply by the place that it's being grown in and this is a living organism and i think that's what we we really boil it down to at least in my definition my personal definition is this is how the wine grape is reacting to its environment as it's attempting to grow and survive in it yeah and then we harvest it and then we try and take whatever character that it has and we try to bring it out into something that really shines Mm -hmm. in a way that can be received by by either our peers or the masses depending on who we're marketing to yeah and that's what's really exciting about it whenever you if you look into how winemakers talk about wine this is what they talk about the most yeah this is what they get excited about this is the thing that makes them smile yeah because i mean it's what they have to work with and 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 it's going to be different every year too that's a cool unless you're in an area that has very low vintage variation that's another fun or challenging depending on how you look at it aspect is you're going to have a different condition next year than you did this year even with the same climate in play and you do have things like uh we we were talking earlier about how Raynard vineyards could uh like plant you know mm-hmm. lavender fields at the bottom of the hill so that they would have that that's something that's actually practiced mm-hmm. in France and so you do have a, a growing practice a proximity of value there that ends up actually contributing to the flavor of the wine some of the notes in there come from just it being surrounded by the plant life mm-hmm. and that brings us to actually one of my favorite new studies that's being brought out which is how how fungi uh, specifically mycelium can impact which nutrients that the uh, roots of the vines have access to so it's it's a really fun study, and I'm by no means an expert in it. But we gotta do an episode on the fungi. <laughs> oh no, I, I'm totally geared up. For I really that want to because it's really interesting how even symbiotic relationships that are happening underneath the soil can actually affect the flavor of a wine. 
which is a really cool concept when you when you start thinking about really these living organisms, how they react to their environment, how they survive together, being what brings us these beautiful experiences. Definitely. So we would love to hear from you guys with some different questions about this. We're going to more than likely do some more reviews on some more vineyards. We would love to know if that's something that you guys enjoy. Yeah, we love it. We love talking about it. Yeah. So we we love seeing these places. Um, we love promoting these places because we know how hard it is to find a place, and especially <laughs> during COVID, to visit a place is you want to know that you're feeling safe. Yeah. Um. So we're willing to kind of not necessarily take that risk. But we are willing to go and have those experiences and to bring them to you. Yep. That being said, our next episode will not be about wine. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of skipped over, except maybe in the first episode, that, you know, we definitely want to be a wine and spirits podcast. Um, and also beer. And also beer. So I, it, when I kind of had this show in, in my head at the very beginning, it was very inclusive of just kind of the world of drink mm -hmm. in general. and our town is a craft beer town. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of thinking, you know, we've kind of covered pretty much all the basics of wine that I think we should cover at this point. And uh, I would love to talk about some of the craft beer that we have here and beer making and stuff like that. So Yeah. And so we, we can go through a couple of the basics of that. Likely have a little surprise. Mm -hmm. um, so coming up, actually, uh, in April, we have National Beer Day. We do. Uh, so that's that's kind of a fun thing. Hopefully, we'll have our uh, our next episode out before then. But we are going to be talking a little bit about that. Maybe we can include some of the history of prohibition and how beer actually ended up being the first drink that we were allowed to have before the official <laughs> end of prohibition. Which this is now an officially recognized holiday, just so you all know. <laughs> so if you uh, if you don't drink beer, just know that you're being unpatriotic. Uh, wow. Yeah. No. Just I calling out the listeners. No, there. just calling them out. <laughs> drink what you want. Um, but yeah. So so we enjoy talking about this. We're looking forward to being able to uh, speak to you more about it. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please please let us know. Uh, we would love to talk more about terroir. We might be doing some deep dives into some different areas yeah. in the future. I really want to do some region episodes. I would love to do that. I think yeah. that it's a really good idea. We should have some wines lined up. I yeah. think we should have some tasters mm -hmm. lined up to have some cold reactions to these. And I, I think that we're going to have a great time with it. So maybe you guys can also give us some ideas of what areas has this episode made you curious about? Yeah, for sure. You know, what wines have you enjoyed? Where did they come from? Let us know, and maybe we'll do an episode about it because we don't have too many listeners right now, so yeah. you are our most valuable customers. <laughs> <laughs> and we appreciate your patronage. We, we appreciate it. And your patronage is literally just listening to us <laughs> talk about wine. Hey, it makes us happy. So It, it does. It does, and we want to hear from you. So thank you so much for joining us. I have been Michael. And I have been Gabe. And Cheers. this is Laid Back Lush. Thank you. Cheers.